HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Coming to you from the shipping container at Roberta's Restaurant here in Bushwick. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and I'm extremely excited. I know I say this every week, but I am actually legitimately extremely excited today uh, to be here with Maxwell Britton. He's the uh, the bar director at Maison Premier, and for those of you who don't know Maison Premier, it is... Um, I think of it as my favorite cocktail bar in the city, but it uh, it is it's quite a bit more. It's in uh, in Williamsburg, right on the stretch of Bedford, where it's kind of the the heartbeat of a lot of the most exciting things going on in uh, in the city right now in, in terms of food and, and cocktails. Um, also, just an incredible raw bar program. I can think of nothing better than than sipping one of Maxwell's uh, cocktails and and eating their their huge selection of oysters um, in the afternoon, which would be incredible. But also, they just recently introduced a uh, a dinner menu, and the uh, the wine list is consistently uh, surprising. Just chock full of not only champagne and and about fifteen different muscadets, but uh, a huge selection of, uh, of of really cool wines. Um, Maxwell, thank you so much for for coming uh, back to Heritage Radio Network. Absolutely, thank you for having me. It's I appreciate great to be back. it. So when you go into uh, Maison Premier, um, it it brings you into Another time. Uh, I don't know if this time actually ever existed, but I, I like to think that that it did. There's a, a really unique feel and a unique vibe to it. Um, and I know you're one of the founders. Can you can you tell me kind of how like where where did this exist in your brain to create this? Uh, and tell us a little bit about what what kind of vibe you tried to create at, at Maison Premier. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's that's. I'll do my best to uh, do justice to this answer. I think it's. It, I can't really say that there is one single single concept that um, sort of equates to what Maison Premier is. Um, 
I think that what we have is something that's inspired by a series of different experiences. Um, we are definitely trying to have a certain focus so as to not be, you know, scattered about, you know, who we are. I think that there's definitely a very firm identity that you'll find when you come to Maison Premiere. Um, and it's sort of a composite of New Orleans and Paris and New York. And uh, obviously, uh, if you've been there, you can tell that it's definitely inspired by uh, days gone by. Um, it's definitely a turn of the century. And um, yeah, I mean, there, there's there's a lot of different elements that, that make up for, for what, what it is. And uh, for some of us that developed Maison Premieres, um, a lot of us have a relationship to New Orleans. Uh, for me, it was... Uh, Moving to New York City when I was 18 years old, I took a train to New York from uh, Arizona, and uh, I had a, a 12-hour layover in New Orleans. And uh, for for those 12 hours, I thought maybe I was moving to the wrong city. And uh, it was pretty amazing. And every single summer since then, because uh, I did move in the summer, I've gone back to New Orleans each summer. And then uh, in 2010, uh, I met two guys named Christoph uh, Ziska and Josh Boise, who were uh, trying to open up a New Orleans-inspired bar. And... Uh, I had uh, already my relationship with New Orleans, and they had their own separate relationship. Um, they had already been open at running a uh, French brasserie in uh, Williamsburg, which is so around, called uh, Le Baracou. And uh, they were doing research, and they were traveling around to Paris and traveling around to uh, New Orleans and visiting all the cocktail bars. And they were very inspired by history, and um, you know, they they were just very very passionate about developing this 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 concept, this very authentic idea um, that had to do with. Uh, oysters and cocktails and wine and um, just basically all the delights that people, you know, want to enjoy in an afternoon. Right. And so now in uh, in America, the, that kind of period between 1850-ish when the cocktail was sort of created and prohibition, um, especially that latter part, the turn of the century part, was kind of the heyday of, of the cocktail. Yeah. How, how do you use... Um, that time and that period to inform uh, inform your decisions when you're when you're creating cocktails or uh, just your d- decisions when uh, when when de- designing the bar. Um, when we first opened, we had only eight cocktails on our menu. Um, we opened up at nine p.m. on a Friday night um, two years ago, almost to this date, and uh, it was basically just a bunch of different different cocktails that I kind of put into what I call like the forgotten cocktail category. Um, most of them were all uh, New Orleans originated cocktails, things like the obituary and the old hickory. These, these cocktails are, you know, unlike things like the Sazerac or maybe the hurricane and the French 75. Um, you know, I was really trying to find things that, that people didn't know about, but that were still um, very much historically driven. And that's kind of how I started out. You know, I wanted to go with classics. And then, you know, some of the originals started being kind of um, inspired by classics. And then as we began to move forward, you know, we didn't want to lose sight of the vision of what the bar was all about. Uh, But we certainly were all about being aggressive, you know, just because, you know, we were trying to be old timey didn't mean that we couldn't be relevant. And that was kind of a really big, um, really important thing for me. You know, like it's not for us, you know, it's not an act. We're very, very sincere about what we do. And you know, the, the way, you know, our whole lifestyle, you know, everything about, you know, the way that uh, we present ourselves and our products is um, very close to our hearts. And and tell me a little bit about uh, about how you present yourselves, because you go in there and uh, everyone is dressed extremely well. Even, you know, today, this morning at 10 a.m. In, in Bushwick, uh, 
not only your handsome gent, but a uh, very well-dressed one at that. Um, tell, please do, do tell us a little bit about how your personal style, uh, you know, wh- about your personal style. Sure, yeah. Um, that's definitely, you know, another, another element of uh, who we are. Um, we're very detail driven. We're very obsessed with, with all of the details, you know? So for, for us, you know, Maison Premier wasn't just about having a great drink or a great wine list for us. It was, you know, developing a beautiful environment, having great music, great products. Um, every, every department, you know, has been extremely thought through all the way down to the way that, the way that we dress, you know, and, uh, we're in Williamsburg and, you know, it is a competitive area, but we also kind of, we wanted to set ourselves apart, you know, just because we're in Williamsburg, in our minds, we said we're not in Williamsburg, we're in Maison Premier. And um, that was written into our constitution from the very beginning. As soon as, you know, the construction site got cleaned up, we all looked at each other and we're like, okay, we're going to be wearing suits every day. That's just how we're going to, this is how we're going to do it. And uh, it's become a very big part of our culture. And um, and that's that's kind of how we sort of identify ourselves at this point. I mean, you, you go in there and it's, yeah, like, all right. These guys are taking what they're doing very seriously, but it's a lot of fun at the same time. Oh yeah, no. Is, oh my god. Is, oh uh, yeah. A great I mean, combination. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't think it wouldn't be fun if it would not be. I don't think that we would do it if we didn't like being in suits. You know, if we didn't enjoy it, if we didn't like kind of like kind of competing for each other's attention. You know, like hey, check out this new set of suspenders I got, and like kind of like the whole staff kind of gets into it at this point. You know, and you kind of have to make it that way, especially like these days in contemporary um, you know restaurant industry. You know, uh, you know, like forty years ago, that would you know a busboy going to work with a you know a suit on was a pretty normal thing. But these days, trying to get somebody just to tie their knot the right way, you know, can kind of be tooth wrenching. And so, you know, we, we try to make it, you know, a part, we try to make it a fun part of our, our culture. It's not supposed to be, you know, um, it's not supposed to be too serious. And so what were some of the, uh, the books that you were reading, uh, when you were doing research? Uh, well, most importantly, uh, Arthur C. Clisby's book, New Orleans Drinks and How to Mix Them. That's where I found a lot of great cocktails, um, you know, things like I said, you know, the Old Hickory, the Obituary, the Wassail Bowl, the Creole Cocktail. Um, you know, th- that was, I-, I had known a little bit about some of these drinks, you know, but when I was really, I was really digging deep to, to find, you know, a lot of New Orleans driven, driven drinks and to, you know, and then to kind of like expand on, on that, you know, I, I think that before I even started, you know, researching on these books, you know, me and the owners, we sat down with each other and we decided to talk about what New Orleans actually meant to us and what that represents. And, um, you know, we all agreed that for us it was, um, you know, there was a part, there was a Caribbean uh, influence, there was a French influence, and there was a Spanish influence. And so that actually leaves a lot of room for a lot of creativity. And it's really cool because it kind of works all under this one umbrella, so, you know, like with Spain, you know, we can work with sherry. With France, we can do muscadet and champagne, cognac, armagnacs, vermouths, uh, aromatized wines. And then in the U.S., you know, we can do, um, you know, whiskey. And then uh, in the Caribbean, we can do rum. And so, you know, there's all these. It's pretty much everything that, you know, I could have ever wanted in um, developing a concept, you know, because I, you know, I don't want to be too old school. You know, I don't want to I don't want to be Fugazi. I you know, I want to have uh, gazy. <laughs> yeah, love it. I mean, it, you know, you go to a lot of these places and you see these guys with their, uh, you know, handlebar mustaches and um, suspenders, and I, I don't think they really understand what they're doing or what it really is. You know, I'm not against that, but you know, there's something that's 
fake about that approach to me. And I want to, I want to be sincere about my approach. And so, you know, I get to have some of that old school stuff, but you know, like things like, you know, like I was saying with, you know, the Caribbean rum, you know, like Tiki is a very relevant thing these days. Um, you know, I think obviously like, you know, the wine culture is, is, is very growing, especially like small growers. And so that gave us, gave me the chance to become really acquainted with grower champagnes and, um, you know, got me able to, you know, try out some like really unusual vermouths and, so, you know, and that's definitely a part of kind of like the competitive nature of, of bar culture, especially in New York and probably internationally. Um, but it's, I, I feel like especially here in New York, you know, it's all about finding, you know, that rare thing, that one thing that nobody know, knows where to find or, you know, how did you come across this or this, you know, super interesting, you know, artifact, you know, from from some part of Spain, you know, that you're putting into your cocktail. And so, um with all those different, you know, with that conglomerate of, you know, regions, you know, we were just able to do so much and it, and it, it somehow they all just work really well together. And where, where are you looking to find, uh, new spirits, uh, new ingredients? How do you, how do you find these things? Um, luckily, luckily, uh, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, the great reps that work with me as on premiere know that we're very rigid in our taste and, um, yeah, so they don't. Nobody, nobody. I'm, I'm luck. One of the lucky bar directors that you know. I don't have too many people kicking my door down trying to get me to buy, you know, some crazy, you know, Stoli chocolate raspberry right, vodka. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, I'm very, you know, I'm very fortunate. You know, I get a lot of really. I've big... actually had someone try to sell me <laughs> Stoli. Like, do you know where? Like, this is. Yeah. No, you know where you're standing no, right now? <laughs> no, no. Thank you. It's yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, like, for, for example, there's this one guy who's great. His name's Nicholas Palazzi. You probably know him. Oh, yeah. Nicholas yeah. Palazzi's great. He's really cool. Like, he's, like, he, he's, like, all about the cause. He, he's just brought us he so his, many like, cool things. He 20-year-old Pinot de Charente and exactly. amazing, yeah. like, tiny producer cognacs and Armagnacs. Yeah. And yep. All yeah. sorts of cool stuff. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, <laughs> he definitely introduced me to, to uh, Chate, um, Pinot de Charente. That was a really, really great um new thing for me to, to try that's that's one great example um i can't i mean he's brought over some good really good armagnacs i don't know if you know like the paul bow cognacs those are really cool um you know even in our wells you know we, we i mean we don't have like super super expensive stuff in our wells but we try to find even like you know grower cognacs to put in there mm-hmm. we're always you know trying to make our wells just a little bit different from you know what you might find in in a lot of different cocktail like a lot of cocktail bars in new york and that I think that was definitely a part of our development as well was, you know, we were going to so many different cocktail bars in New York and other parts of the country, and we noticed that there was a lot of trends in their back bars and in their wells. And it's not that those products aren't good. All of them are great, you know, but we were, we were really trying to get a lot of things on our shelves that most people have never seen before. And obviously, absinthe is, you know, a really big part of that. And, um, and you'll see that when you come into Maison Premier, you'll see... When you look at that back bar, that there are a lot of bottles that you probably have never seen before. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, the, your absent list is the best that I, it, the most interesting, most varied that that I've ever seen. And uh, I imagine that comes from the the inspiration of uh, Parisian cafe culture. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know if I have time before our break for me to. to yeah, to I was get into I was waiting until after. So let let's yeah. take a quick break, and then I want you to tell us all about uh, your interest in absence. So cool. Awesome. Uh, stay tuned for more of In the Drink with Maxwell Britton on HeritageNetwork.org. 
You are listening to IDID by Obesity on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Washed rind cheeses are a fairly recent addition to the repertoires of artisanal cheesemakers in the United States. These cheeses tend to be stinkier than other types and are often high on the list of connoisseurs. Now, Whole Foods Market has come up with one of their own. The raw cow's milk cheese made by Sprout Creek Farm in Poughkeepsie, New York, is washed with six-point ale from Red Hook, Brooklyn. The beige sticky rind deepens in color as it ages. The satiny ivory cheese within is mellow with a sweetly tangy bite and a grassy aroma. The current version features six-point diesel, which is in limited supply, so stop by and pick up some before it's gone. And point-of-origin cheese is sold exclusively at Whole Foods Market in New York, northern New Jersey, and Connecticut. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. back on in the drink on heritageradionetwork.org um just to remind you i'm here with maxwell Britton from my favorite bar maison premiere uh and he's brought um what have you brought here this is a, a really interesting contraption yeah uh, so we were just about to get into the absinthe conversation before our break and so i took the opportunity to uh pour us some absinthe uh, to help us get into the conversation a little bit. Um, so this is a really excellent absinthe. Um, it's called uh, the uh, Edouard from uh, Jade Spirits. And uh, the absinthe Edouard, it's an absinthe ferret, um, is not available here in the United States. So I kind of picked something special for us to have here that uh, most people don't get the opportunity to try. Um, most absinthe enthusiasts kind of know what this is all about. Um, and, uh, it's just an extremely elegant absinthe. You know, there's, there's, it's really, uh, it's very complex. Uh, it it really, it really packs a lot of complexities in in a, in a really, in a really brief period of time. Um, you know, it has everything that, that you, that, you know, most basic absinthe drinkers are looking for. You're going to have fennel, lemon balm, hyssop, uh, wormwood. Anise, obviously, is a big part of that. Um, mint definitely can be in there as well. But this particular one, you know, it has a really an amazing aroma. Um, it's very chalky. You get a lot of hay out of it. I find that, like, with some of the more superior absinths, especially from Europe, that um, they tend to even have this almost, like, pine herb flavor going on with it, you know, that you really don't find. F- I, I feel like that it's... It's a, it's sort of like a whole another echelon of superiority, you know, compared to some of the other um, domestic absence that you might have. 
Um, obviously, I can I you know can speak on you know almost every absinthe, domestic absinthe that's available, and there are many great ones, but. This one is really special. It's also developed by an extremely talented gentleman named uh, Theodore A. Bro. And uh, he's a very, very important person in the absinthe movement, being that uh, he is pretty much responsible for um, lifting the ban on absinthe in 2007. Um, his background is, a, uh, as, is as a biochemist and historian and uh, now master distiller of uh, a beautiful line of absinthe. Uh, one of them is available commercially in the United States called uh, the Jade Nouvelle New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And he's a super cool guy. He's from New Orleans. He's American, but he distills and produces in France. And only one of his absence is actually available here in the United States. <laughs> He's working on it, though, and I know that he has one new line coming out called the CF Berger, uh, another absinthe vert, um, which I know is now in the United States. I think he's just waiting on label approval right now. And how would this compare to a pre-ban absinthe? So the cool thing about Ted is, like I said, he's a uh, historian and a uh, biochemist. And so he um, took a very scientific and historic approach to the way that he began to develop his absinthe, which was he got his hands on pre-ban absinthe and tried to develop absinthe as best as he could, as closely as he could to the way that it once was produced. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for example, he has uh, one, of it, one of my favorite, another one of my favorites of his. All of them are excellent. I can't I can really say there's one that I like any more than the other, but he has one called the PF-1901. Mm-hmm. Um, PF means Pernod Fields 1901. So that's basically his recipe um, that is based on a sample of Pernod Fields absinthe from 1901. Um, I haven't actually tasted that sample, so I couldn't tell you how close it actually is to it, but um, I imagine it's pretty close. He's a very talented gentleman. Um, so we kind of got into the more, uh, the more detailed element of the absinthe discussion. So to scale back and talk about... Um, talk about absinthe and maison premiere and how all that got started that that is actually really where like the real story of uh where maison premiere was developed um josh and christophe or no it was just josh went to paris josh boise our, one of our primary owners of maison premiere went to paris and um he ended up in a cafe called chez Jeanneau. and chez Jeanneau is uh just kind of this hipster cafe somewhere in paris uh, that has a horseshoe-shaped bar and a huge selection of pasties. And he went in there, and there was just a bunch of young people drinking pasties in this horseshoe-shaped bar, listening to records, and just there was just this aroma of um, pasties in the air. And and I think that's kind of that was like truly the birth of Maison Premier. Um, he when he had that experience, and um, so he came back, and that's kind of like where where the real and story that, and started. And that's one of the unique. Uh, architectural features of yes. Maison Premier. So you have this incredible... Uh, I just thought of it as a round bar, but I guess it is horseshoe shaped. Yes. And yeah. then kind of mirrored on the other side with another horseshoe. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, kind, I guess... I mean, I, there's the back bar, mm-hmm. and then on the other side of the back bar is the oyster bar. It's the oyster bar. Yeah, so right. I kind of almost even consider that like a separate part of our bar in a lot of ways. And it's, uh, it's just absolutely like a stunning visual centerpiece. Yeah, Every, everything about it, every detail about uh, you know, you, you just sit there and you're sipping your drink, and you're like, wow, look, even that fan is really cool, and wow, that light, that light, that light bulb is cool, and oh, their doorknob is really interesting. Like, it seems like every little detail um, in the in the bar it was just thought out. It's just well thought out. Yeah, I think that's it's kind of funny. That's sort of I th- 
that's why we opened at 9 p.m. on a Friday night and not, you know, the 5.30 or 6 p.m. Because we were still kind of going over, you know, the details, kind of like, you know, look at that. There's a little nick on the wall. Should we have that there? Do we need to put another one? You know, should we add another fixture? Like, no, okay, guys, let's open. It's 9 o'clock. Let's just open the door. And uh, that's, that's kind of what that's, happened. So let's go back to this absinthe because uh, I took a sip about five minutes ago and I'm still tasting it. It's uh-huh. one of the more most complex, um, just really, really beautiful absinthe I've had. Notice it's very, very dry and uh, right. you, you didn't put any, any sugar in it. What's the deal with, with the whole sugar thing? Sure. Um, so, I mean, I, for, for my customers, you know, I, I'll always serve an absinthe drip to them with, uh, with a sugar cube. Um, Absinthe should always be served one part absinthe to four to five parts water, um, oftentimes with a sugar cube, and that's probably what you'll be getting when you go to Maison Premier unless you ask for the sugar cube not to be there. Um, but basically, the idea behind not having sugar is something that you know people have done for quite some time, and these days with the absinthe movement, many absinthe enthusiasts prefer not to have sugar with their absinthe. Um, The reason for that is very similar to perhaps a coffee enthusiast who might not put sugar or milk into their coffee. You really want to taste, you know, you really want to taste the absinthe for everything that it is. Um, And so by removing the sugar, it kind of gives you that chance. The sugar is um, is sort of a uh, very traditional style. The part of the reason why it was developed was uh, to sort of take off the edge from the bitterness of the wormwood. Mm -hmm. Um, Another reason kind of has a little bit to do um with females in the 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 days when absinthe was drank very widely in france where females actually preferred to drink absinthe over a lot of other spirits at the time um they felt that it left a more pleasant smell on their breath over something like say cognac or armagnac um, but what they didn't like about it was that it was a little bit too bitter for them and so that's kind of how the sugar cube kind of got incorporated into it and everybody knows how influential women are and so that's kind of how that came about you get the feeling that uh, turn of the century, people just like things sweeter than we do now. I've tried to recreate some older cocktail recipes, and I've just been like, whoa, that is extremely sweet. The yeah. champagne that people were drinking was yeah. significantly sweeter mm-hmm. than now, and even some even some gins were, were legitimately sweet gins. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there was old Tom Gin, too. You know, they, that was you know definitely known for being a little bit sweeter. Um and there's definitely practices with sugars that I, I'm still kind of wrapped, like still kind of trying to perfect and understand, you know. Uh, you read some of these old cocktail books and you read about things like loaf sugar and, you know, um, gum Arabic and all these sorts of things. And, and all, all of them are, you know, a lot of time their applications are very, very thick and, you know, pretty difficult to work with. It's, it's some, it is definitely a challenge, you know, when you try to recreate these things. And more interesting we i've had the discussion about you know how technology these days kinds of kind of allows us to make drinks perhaps a lot better than the way that they were used to ma- used to be made and so there is always kind of that balance of trying to understand what it actually tasted like or if you just want to make a good tasting drink right you know yeah i mean i don't think there's anything good about you know muddling loaf sugar with water in order to make uh, a simple yeah, a syrup when you can just make a simple syrup and it'll take you <laughs> right. much easier and it'll dissolve yeah. a lot better and right that that'll be great now what is this uh contraption this this kind of right so i brought wrap? over um something that's very cool for you know when you're drinking absinthe solo and you're not drinking it with a sugar cube uh this is called the balancier um it kind of looks like a bell 
with spider legs. And uh, it, it neatly sits on top of your Poncelier glass, which is a stemmed glass that kind of has a, uh, a conical shape to it. Um, so you put the legs of the Balancier right over the top of the glass, and underneath the bell shape, there is kind of like a seesaw that sits right there. And what happens is when you add your chilled water into the Balancier, um, it slowly sort of teeters that water, drips it right over your absinthe. Um, kind of allowing it to develop its louche, um, which is sort of that opaque color that develops whenever um, water hits the absinthe, and that that comes from uh, many of its essential oils sort of being released. Um, absinthe is a very, very high-proof spirit. It can be anywhere from 50% to 80% in alcohol by volume. Um, if you're drinking legitimate absinthe, then your absinthe is going to have uh, no coloring, no extracts, no sugars, um, no essences or oils. And, um, so, you know, you can sit, you can deduct quite a few things about your absinthe just by looking at its color. Um, you're, you know, you have your wormwood, lemon balm, hyssop, anise, you know, all these very, very natural ingredients that are all kind of sourced from the earth. Um, so if you're looking at an absinthe there, you know, that it's sort of, sort of, um, it's soaked up a lot of that, a lot of the, those, uh, a lot of those colors from those ingredients and taken on a lot of, uh, a lot of qualities of them. And so when you're at such a high proof and you kind of have like almost like this condensed amount of flavor, um, you know, you kind of need water to help it open up a little bit. And so if I have advice for any beginning absinthe drinkers, it would be, please just don't drink it without water. Please don't. Yeah. And I think that applies to other spirits as well. For instance, like cask strength, uh, whiskeys, I tend to like a lot better with maybe not four parts water to one, but you know, <laughs> right. just a, a few drops right. of water I find right. really, uh, help them open up right. quite a bit. This is actually, you know, I'm glad I'm talking to you about this because one thing, like I I have an argument, uh, which is that I, I believe that absinthe has terroir. And um, and I don't really think that you can actually say that about a lot of other a lot of other uh, spirits. I don't think it's possible to say that about a lot of other spirits. There's kind of a little bit too much production going on with them in order to be able to say that. Um, the reason why I feel like it has a terroir, uh, well, number one is because I think absinthe really does drink drink quite a lot like wine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's meant to be it's meant to be slowly drank. Um, like I said, you know, it's you know fifty percent to eighty percent alcohol by volume. Um, which is 100 to 160 proof, but when you when you're adding water to it, and you're you're you know you're stretching out a lot of these flavors, and you're bringing out you know a lot of a lot of complexities, and so when you're adding four to five parts water, then you're taking that 50 to 80 percent all the way down to you know somewhere maybe in the 30 percent range of your you know of your in, in terms of consumption, and you know it's meant to be sipped on, you know, it's meant to be tasted and it does come from, you know, it, can, it comes from Switzerland, it comes from Spain, it comes from France, it comes from, uh, it comes from the United States. And in most cases, in every region that they come from, they come from places where they're very lush, you know, a lot of mountain areas, you know, a lot of places where you can find things like, you know, ferns and, you know, wormwood and fennel and all these sorts of things that do best in, in, in those environments. And I think that they all really are very different in, in, in those regions. Yeah, I mean, uh, that I completely agree with you, with you saying that absinthe forces you to slow down. There's something about it where you don't want to drink this quickly. You want a small sip and then to think about it, and it forces you to slow down and, and consider really what's going on in the glass, which I think is, is an, a great thing, and we should be doing that with, with anything that is, uh, that is well-made. Um, 
the idea of, of absinthe having uh, terroir is a really interesting one and one that I've never really considered before. Um, but sipping it, uh, especially one that's made in, in France, and uh, having it bring me back to a place I've never been before, having, you know, I, 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 I sip this and I just think about a turn-of-the-century Parisian cafe with, you know, women smoking long cigarettes and, uh, <laughs> it's, you know, people just vehemently discussing the politics of the day. Um, I, it, it brings me back there in a way that uh, I find that when wines are really great, when wines are very terroir-specific, they transport you to a place, a specific place. It's a, that idea of terroir is that it has a, a somewhereness to it. Um, and I, I, I could, I could totally agree with that. I could say, I see where you're coming from a hundred percent. The one spirit that I would say I, I think does have terroir, um, is, uh, a single malt scotch whiskey. Um, yeah, I think that those, mm-hmm. you, you, you really do see regional differences. Um, Absolutely. and then especially when you have peated ones, um, that peat only grows right there. Mm-hmm. And that's, that peat is, is, uh, it flavors, flavors the scotch and, Absolutely. I think, I think those have quite sure. a bit of terroir. Sure, yeah. Or even how far inland you are, how close you are to the water, you know, all the you know, subtle subtle nuances from the salt and the wind and all that sort of stuff is definitely really influential in the way um, that scotch is done. I'm not, I'm not a scotch expert, though. No, I, I don't claim to be either, but uh, I do enjoy drinking them. Uh, well, I, I, it looks like we have to finish up. I have so many more questions for you. Um, I, I, I think you know by now that I'm just such a huge, ridiculously huge fan of, of what you guys do. Um, you'll sure, for sure be seeing me at Maison Premier really soon. But, uh, Maxwell, thank you so much for, for was, coming on. It was a great drink. time. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, really and enjoyed it. To all the listeners, I really encourage you guys to, to stop by. Just recently, just recently opened up for, uh, for brunch. Uh, but my favorite thing there is afternoon cocktails and oysters, if you can ever have that, that luxury. It's one of the best things to do in New York. Uh, thanks so much for listening to In the Drink, and we'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.